as we continue worshiping together today, receive these words of scripture from Jonah chapter three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a pro proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All of them turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his anger fierce so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. I invite you and all of us together now to pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day upon which we are gathered. May your spirit move among us. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable to you, O God, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Does this scripture sound familiar? It's the response of Isaiah to God's call before he'd really understood the assignment. If you read on in chapter six of Isaiah, you will see that immediately after that part, Isaiah learns his assignment, which is to go and speak to the people of Israel in ways that will not make them turn to the Lord and live, but rather will shut their ears and their eyes so that they will not turn to God and live. And Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And God says, till everything is destroyed. Here I am, send me. All the prophets.
prophets call stories that are found in Scripture, all of them, all of them had their excuses for why they weren't right for the job, even Isaiah before that part. But all of the biblical prophets, like Isaiah, ended up saying, here I am, send me. And while perhaps not as clearly desperate as Isaiah's call, most prophets labored long, long years to try to get God's message through to anyone. And they were usually speaking to their own people, namely the people of Judah and Israel. Now, let's compare this with our protagonist, the prophet Jonah. We are in week three of our Jonah mini-series. And where we are is this. When God calls, this is what we know about story. When God calls, Jonah runs away, full stop. Then, without even trying, Jonah's presence, words, and actions bring the Tarshish-bound sailors to faith in Yahweh. And in today's chapter, Jonah is sent to speak not to Israel, but to the Gentiles, the people of Nineveh, a great city in Assyria, the most dreaded, hated empire in the world at that time. Once again, things go exceedingly well for Jonah, More about that later. But the point is that in the lineup of biblical prophets, Jonah is the one of these things that's not like the others. Jonah is a caricature of a biblical prophet whose story in this book highlights pressing questions and struggles of Israel at the time the story was written. It, it probably around the 6th or the 5th century before the Common Era and toward the end of the Babylonian exile. To fully appreciate the satire of the story, it helps to know some of what the Israelites were grappling with, what it was that the author of the story was speaking about. As they moved back to their homelands, the Israelites were discerning how to maintain their traditional covenant values, their identity, and their call to be God's holy people in the midst of the melting pot of the great Persian Empire. Many thought that strict separation from the other was the best course of action. Another issue at that time was that many believed that the exile they had experienced or were were trying to come out of was God's punishment upon them for their failure to be faithful to their covenant relationships. And still others believed, and this was kind of a well-known way of thinking at the time, they believed that the suffering they were experiencing, the suffering in this generation, was due to, was caused by the sins of those in the past and that they were going to have to wait several generations before they could work their way out of it. 
a keen, theologically sophisticated writer living in the midst of all of this anxiety, decides to say something about it and writes the book of Jonah. Last week, we ended with Jonah getting spewed out of the great fish onto dry land. And today, we received the word of God calling Jonah for a second time. And this time, Jonah doesn't run away. He walks about a third of the way into the great city. And he delivers his prophecy, likely the shortest sermon on record. It's only five words in Hebrew, only five. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And immediately, immediately the people, not the people of Israel, but the Gentile people of Nineveh in Assyria, the people who knew nothing of the covenants and the commandments, the liberating love and the saving presence of Yahweh, those people, those people believe God. They believe God's word. Their fasting and putting on sackcloth were signs of their repentance. Compare that experience of the prophet Jonah to all those other prophets and poor old Isaiah who had to just keep at it knowing that he was destined to fail. And I assume it's because it was such a large city that it took a minute for the king of Nineveh to get word of what was going on. You know, he didn't even receive the prophecy from Jonah directly. It was on hearsay, hearsay, that the king ups the ante, rolls out his edict. All people, all animals, all herds, all flocks will fast, will be covered in sackcloth, and they will turn from their evil ways and their violence. I got to say, for weeks, in anticipation of this series, I have been thinking about how I wish that Monty Python had done a take on Jonah. Because this and every chapter in the book has scenes that are truly absurd comedy that's such rich material. And for those who may resonate with another kind of entertainment, I've also had <laughs> Pixar Disney kinds of images in my head of dogs and cats and sheep and goats and oxen and donkeys and maybe a wisecracking bird, lined up, sitting in their assigned ash heaps. <laughs> giving a side eye, looking at the screen, doing a direct message, sackcloth, ashes. Really? And can you see that? You can see this, right? Can you see this? I can see this. And honestly, just imagine the musical numbers in either one of these unmade productions. I mean, 
I digress. <laughs> not really, not really. Looking upon the original production, though, looking upon the original production of this rather absurd scene of people and their cows and sheep covered in sackcloth and ashes, God's mind changed. And the calamity that Jonah announced did not happen. God's mind changed. The people were saved, as well as the animals. Now think for just a minute about how this turn of events would land upon the Israelites when it was read by them, by those persons who were living in that context that I described just a minute ago. God's mind changed to show mercy to the Ninevites immediately, without any exile, without any destroyed homes or holy places, without waiting for generations to die off. I mean, if the story were told at the 5C BCE comedy club, I can imagine some hearty laughter at the enemy for acting with such absurdity. And of course, they would also laugh at the wisecracking bird, because who doesn't always laugh at the wisecracking bird? And they would laugh and laugh and laugh, that is, until, as with any good comedy, the point lands. And when this point lands on minds and hearts in that context, perhaps it begins to cause some discomfort. Maybe it begins to cause some pangs. Wait, what was that? That's not funny. They get off that easy? What about me? What about us? We're the special ones, after all. We're the chosen ones, after all. We're the shining city on a hill, after all. Our God wouldn't let the foreigners off that easy, right? The theological threads woven throughout this story are that God is free to save whomever God wants. Whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not, the theological threads woven throughout the story is that God is free to save whomever God desires, even our opponents, even our very worst enemies, and that God is more interested in extending mercy and forgiveness than executing violent judgment. It is a theology foreshadowing that of a certain Jewish rabbi named Jesus, who said that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
and then proceeded to cross boundaries of every kind, national, tribal, cultural, religious, legal, not for the sake of simply destroying anything, but to fulfill these things all for the sake of love and of justice, to save people, not destroy or condemn them. And of course, we can think of all sorts of people that we might imagine would be outraged at such a theology. What about the law? What about my interpretation of Scripture, which is, of course, the right one? What about tradition? Tradition! What about the discipline? We can imagine those who believe that God's favor rests upon them and not upon certain others, that they deserve more than others, that they are more than others. And we could easily think of persons who might even name tragic events as God's judgment against whoever the Gentiles are for them. It's easy to go there for us. And there's a time and a place for naming such perverted theology and such small damaging thinking and the violence that flows from it. But let's think today a little bit more about how this story fell upon its original hearers and upon the hearers in this place and in this community today. It's a little closer to our own hearts and minds. Are you happy when an adversary receives mercy in a way that feels unfair? Are you joyful? when someone who has hurt you has a change of heart and is shown mercy? Can you be glad that we serve a God with such deep compassion, realizing that if God can forgive that person or those people, then surely God can forgive you? Can we together give God thanks and rejoice in God's mercy and forgiveness that is big and generous enough to forgive you and me even when we feel completely unforgivable? Clearly, these big God questions about who gets forgiven and when, of how grace works and why, have been around a long time. And I imagine that all of us at various times have had our thoughts and feelings about it, about all this stuff. I wonder how often in our thoughts and feelings, joy is anywhere on the radar. All of this makes me think of a quote by the late pastor and prophet William Sloan Coffin, who said this, quote, Why are Christians so often so 
joyless. It is, I think, because too often, Christians have only enough religion to make themselves miserable. Guilt they know, but not forgiveness. He goes on to say, Nietzsche correctly noted, quote, Christians should look more redeemed. Christians should look more redeemed. Jonah was called to be a prophet of judgment and doom for Nineveh and ended up, by God's grace, becoming a prophet of mercy and grace, bringing a word that turned hearts toward the God of liberating love and justice. He didn't have to do much of anything, and he had so much life-giving success. It's the dream career of prophets and pastors everywhere. Jonah's the luckiest prophet ever. I mean, I spent some serious time trying to even consider what it would be like to use five words in a sermon that would speak to people in such a way that they would turn their hearts and minds away from harm and toward God's way of love. I mean, can you imagine if any of us had five words, just five words? I mean, send me into general conference with five words. I'm going to get her done, you know? I mean, if only. Unfortunately, it's a little bit more like Isaiah on that front. Good thing that really God is the one who does the heavy lifting. God is the one who brings the grace. God is the one who knows the hows and the whys. You and I are simply asked to respond to God's call to do what is ours to do, and to trust God to do the rest. Jonah did finally get around to responding to the call, going where God sent him and saying what God gave him to say. But I wonder whether Jonah remembered his heartfelt prayer that he had prayed from the belly of the great fish, his words about how God brought his life up from the pit and how deliverance belongs to the Lord. Even after the thing with the boat and the storm and the three days and the three nights and the big fish, I wonder whether Jonah entered Nineveh hating those people more than he loved God and his neighbor. I wonder if Jonah trusted God. I wonder how Jonah reacted to the transformative effect brought about by his five-word sermon. I wonder if he was filled with joy 
But those are questions and ponderings for next week's big finale. For today, maybe we can simply ask God for the grace not only to look more redeemed, but to share in whatever ways we can with as many people as we can in as many places as we can the peace and the joy of God's compassion, God's mercy, and God's love. May it be so. Amen.